Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, the podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with the conquest of bread, we'll be finishing off a chapter we half did last week and then doing all of the next one. I'm going to try to avoid splitting chapters, but this was just one where there seemed to be no other way to split this really without making a tiny episode. Anyway, let's get started. Chapter 9. The Need for Luxury. Section 4. Literature, science, and art must be cultivated by free men. Only on this condition will they succeed in emancipating themselves from the yoke of the state, of capital, and of the bourgeois mediocrity which stifles them. What means has the scientist of today to make researches that interest him? Should he ask help of the state? which can only be given to one candidate in a hundred, and which only he may obtain who promises ostensibly to keep to the beaten track. Let us remember how the Academy of Sciences of France repudiated Darwin, how the Academy of St. Petersburg treated Mendeleev with contempt, and how the Royal Society of London refused to publish Jules paper, in which he determined the mechanical equivalent of heat, finding it unscientific. Footnote 1. It was why all great researches, all discoveries revolutionizing science, have been made outside academies and universities, either by men rich enough to remain independent, like Darwin and Lyell, or by men who undermine their health by working in poverty, and often in great straits, losing endless time for want of a laboratory and unable to procure the instruments or books necessary to continue their researches, but persevering against hope, and often dying before they had reached the end in view. Their name is Legion. Altogether, the system of help granted by the state is so bad that science has always endeavoured to emancipate itself from it. For this very reason, there are thousands of learned societies organised and maintained by volunteers in Europe and America some having developed to such a degree that all the resources of subvention societies and all the wealth of millionaires would not buy their treasures. No governmental institution is as rich as the Zoological Society of London, which is supported by voluntary contributions. It does not buy the animals which in thousands people its gardens. They are sent by other societies and by other collectors of the entire world. The Zoological Society of Bombay will send an elephant as a gift. Another time, a hippopotamus or a rhinoceros is offered by Egyptian naturalists. And these magnificent presents are pouring in every day, arriving from all corners of the globe. Birds, reptiles, collections of insects, etc. Such consignments often comprise animals that could not be bought for all the gold in the world. Thus, a traveller who has captured an animal at life's peril, and now loves it as he would love a child, will give it to the society because he is sure it will be cared for. The entrance fee paid by visitors, and they are numberless, suffices for the maintenance of that immense institution. What is defective in the Zoological Society of London and in other kindred societies is that the member's fee cannot be paid in work that the keepers and numerous employees of this large institution are not recognized as members of the society. While many have no other incentive to joining the society than to put the cabalistic letters FZS, fellow of the Zoological Society, on their cards. In a word, 
what is needed is a more perfect cooperation. We may say the same about inventors that we have said of scientists. Who does not know what sufferings nearly all great inventions have cost? Sleepless nights, families deprived of bread, want of tools and materials for experiments. This is the history of nearly all those who have enriched industry. This is the history of nearly all of those who have enriched industry with inventions which are the truly legitimate pride of our civilization. But what are we to do to alter the conditions that everybody is convinced are bad? Patents have been tried and we know with what results. The inventor sells his patent for a few pounds and the man who has only lent the capital pockets the enormous profits often resulting from the invention. Besides, Patents isolate the inventor. They compel him to keep secret his researches, which therefore end in failure. Whereas the simplest suggestion, coming from a brain less absorbed in the fundamental idea, sometimes suffices to fertilize the invention and make it practical. Like all state control, patents hamper the progress of industry. Thought being incapable of being patented, patents are crying injustice in theory. And in practice, they result in one of the great obstacles to the rapid development of invention. What is needed to promote the spirit of invention is, first of all, the awakening of thought, the boldness of conception, which our entire education causes to languish. It is the spreading of a scientific education, which would increase the number of inquirers a hundredfold. It is faith that humanity is going to take a step forward because it is enthusiasm, the hope of doing good that has inspired all the great inventors. The social revolution alone can give this impulse to thought, this boldness, this knowledge, this conviction of working for all. Then we shall have vast institutes supplied with motor power and tools of all sorts, immense industrial laboratories open to all inquirers, where men will be able to work out their dreams after having acquitted themselves of their duty towards society. Machinery palaces where they will spend their five or six hours of leisure, where they will make their experiments, where they will find other comrades, experts in other branches of industry, likewise coming to study some difficult problem, and therefore able to help and enlighten each other. The encounter of their ideas and experience causing the longed-for solution to be found. And yet again, this is no dream. Solonoi Gorodok, in Petersburg, has already partially realized it as regards technical matters. It is a factory, well furnished with tools and free to all. Tools and motor power are supplied gratis. Only metals and wood are charged for at cost price. Unfortunately, workmen only go there at night when worn out by 10 hours labor in the workshop. Moreover, they carefully hide their inventions from each other as they are hampered by patents and capitalism. That bane of present society that stumbling block in the path of intellectual and moral progress. Section 5. And what about art? From all sides we hear lamentations about the decadence of art. We are indeed far behind the great masters of the Renaissance. The technicalities of art have recently made great progress. Thousands of people gifted with a certain amount of talent cultivate every branch. But art seems to fly from civilization. Technicalities make headway, but inspiration frequents artists' studios less than ever. Where, indeed, should it come from? Only a grand idea can inspire art, 
Art is in our ideal synonymous with creation. It must look ahead. But save a few rare, very rare exceptions, the professional artist remains too philistine to perceive new horizons. Moreover, this inspiration cannot come from books. It must be drawn from life, and present society cannot arouse it. Raphael and Murillo painted at a time when the search of a new ideal could be pursued while retaining the old religious traditions. They painted to decorate churches, which themselves represented the pious work of several generations of a given city. The basilic, with its mysterious aspect, its grandeur, was connected with the life itself of the city, and could inspire a painter. He worked for a popular monument, he spoke to his fellow citizens, and in return, he received inspiration. He appealed to the multitude, in the same way as did the nave, the pillars, the stained windows, the statues, and the carved doors. Nowadays, the greatest honor a painter can aspire to is to see his canvas, framed in gilded wood, hung in a museum, a sort of old curiosity shop, where you see, as in the Prado, Murillo's ascension, next to a beggar of Velázquez and the dogs of Philip II. Poor Velázquez and poor Murillo, poor Greek statues, which lived in the Acropolis of their cities and are now stifled beneath the red cloth hangings of the Louvre. When a Greek sculptor chiseled his marble, he endeavored to express the spirit and heart of the city. All its passions, all its traditions of glory, were to live again in the work. But today, the united city has ceased to exist. There is no more communion of ideas. The town is a chance agglomeration of people who do not know one another who have no common interest, save that of enriching themselves at the expense of one another. The fatherland does not exist. What fatherland can the international banker and the ragpicker have in common? Only when cities, territories, nations, or groups of nations will have renewed their harmonious life, will art be able to draw its inspiration from ideals held in common. Then will the architect conceive the city's monument which will no longer be a temple, a prison, or a fortress. Then will the painter, the sculptor, the carver, the ornament worker know where to put their canvases, their statues, and their decoration, deriving their power of execution from the same vital source, and gloriously marching all together towards the future. But till then, art can only vegetate. The best canvases of modern artists are those that represent nature, villages, valleys, the sea with its dangers, the mountain with its splendors. But how can the painter express the poetry of work in the fields if he has only contemplated it, imagined it, if he has never delighted in it himself, if he only knows it as a bird of passage knows the country he soars over in his migrations, if in the vigor of early youth he has not followed the plow at dawn, and enjoyed mowing grass with a large sweep of the scythe next to hardy haymakers vying in energy with lively young girls who fill the air with their songs. The love of the soil and of what grows on it is not acquired by sketching with a paintbrush. It is only in its service, and without loving it, how paint it? This is why all that the best painters have produced in this direction is still so imperfect, not true to life, nearly always merely sentimental. There is no strength in it. You must have seen a sunset when returning from work. You must have been a peasant among peasants to keep the splendor of it in your eye. 
You must have been at sea with fishermen at all hours of the day and night, have fished yourself, struggled with the waves, faced the storm, and after rough work, experienced the joy of hauling a heavy net, or the disappointment of seeing it empty, to understand the poetry of fishing. You must have spent time in a factory, known the fatigues and the joys of creative work, forged metals by the vivid light of a blast furnace, have felt the life in a machine, to understand the power of man, and to express it in a work of art. You must, in fact, be permeated with popular feelings, to describe them. Besides, the works of future artists who will have lived the life of the people, like the great artists of the past, will not be destined for sale. They will be an integral part of a living whole world that would not be complete without them, any more than they would be complete without it. Men will go to the artist's own city to gaze at his work, and the spirited and serene beauty of such creations will produce its beneficial effect on heart and mind. Art, in order to develop, must be bound up with industry by a thousand immediate degrees. Blended, so to say, as Ruskin and the great socialist poet Morris have proved so often and so well. Everything that surrounds man, in the street, in the interior and exterior of public monuments, must be of a pure artistic form. But this can only be realized in a society in which all enjoy comfort and leisure. Then only shall we see art associations, of which each member will find room for his capacity, for art cannot dispense with an infinity of purely manual and technical supplementary works. These artistic associations will undertake to embellish the houses of their members, as those kind volunteers, the young painters of Edinburgh, did in decorating the walls and ceilings of the great hospital for the poor of the city. A painter or sculptor who has produced a work of personal feeling will offer it to the woman he loves, or to a friend, executed for love's sake. Will his work, inspired by love, be inferior to the art that today satisfies the vanity of the Philistine because it has cost much money? The same will be done as regards all pleasures not comprised in the necessaries of life. He who wishes for a grand piano will enter the association of musical instrument makers, and by giving the association part of his half-day's leisure, he will soon possess the piano of his dreams. If he is fond of astronomical studies, he will join the association of astronomers, with its philosophers, its observers, its calculators, with its artists in astronomical instruments, its scientists and amateurs, and he will have the telescope he desires by taking his share of the associated work, for it is especially the rough work that is needed in an astronomical observatory. Bricklayers, carpenters, founders, mechanics work. The last touch being given to the instrument of precision by the artist. In short, the five or seven hours a day which each will have at his disposal, after having consecrated several hours to the production of necessities, would aptly suffice to satisfy all longings for luxury however varied. Thousands of associations would undertake to supply them. What is now the privilege of an insignificant minority would be accessible to all. Luxury, ceasing to be a foolish and ostentatious display of the bourgeois class, would become an artistic pleasure. Everyone would be the happier for it. In collective work, performed with a light heart to attain a desired end, a book, a work of art, or an object of luxury, each will find an incentive and the necessary relaxation that makes life pleasant. In working to put an end to the division between master and slave, we work for the happiness of both, for the happiness of humanity. Chapter 10. Agreeable Work. Section 1. 
When socialists maintain that a society, freed from the rule of the capitalists, would make work agreeable and would suppress all repugnant and unhealthy drudgery, they are laughed at. And yet, even today, we can see the striking progress that is being made in this direction. And wherever this progress has been achieved, employers congratulate themselves on the economy of energy obtained thereby. It is evident that a factory could be made as healthy and pleasant as a scientific laboratory, and it is no less evident that it would be advantageous to make it so. In a spacious and well-ventilated factory, the work is better. It is easy to introduce many small ameliorations, of which each represents an economy of time or of manual labor. And if most of the workshops we know are foul and unhealthy, it is because the workers are of no account in the organization of factories, and because the most absurd waste of human energy is the distinctive feature of the present industrial organization. Nevertheless, now and again, we already find, even now, some factories so well managed that it would be a real pleasure to work in them, if the work, be it well understood, were not to last more than four or five hours a day, and if everyone had the possibility of varying it according to his tastes. There are immense works, which I know, in one of the Midland counties, unfortunately consecrated to engines of war. They are perfect as regards sanity and intelligent organization. They occupy 50 English acres of land, 15 of which are roofed with glass. The pavement of fireproof bricks is as clean as that of a miner's cottage, and the glass roof is carefully cleaned by a gang of workmen who do nothing else. In these works are forged steel ingots, or blooms, weighing as much as 20 tons, and when you stand 30 feet from the immense furnace, whose flames have a temperature of more than a thousand degrees, you do not guess its presence, save when its great door is opened to let out a steel monster. And the monster is handled by only three or four workmen, who, now here, now there, open a tap, causing immense cranes to move one way or another by the pressure of water. You enter these works expecting to hear the deafening noise of stampers, and you find that there are no stampers. The immense hundred-ton guns and the crankshafts of transatlantic steamers are forged by hydraulic pressure, and the worker has but to turn a tap to give shape to the immense mass of steel, which makes a far more homogeneous metal, without crack or flaw, of the blooms, whatever be their thickness. I expected an infernal grating, and I saw machines which cut blocks of steel thirty feet long with no more noise than is needed to cut cheese, and when I expressed my admiration to the engineer who showed us around, he answered, quote, a mere question of economy. This machine, that plain steel, has been in use for 42 years. It would not have lasted 10 years if its parts, badly adjusted, interfered, and creaked at each movement of the plane. And the blast furnaces? It would be a waste to let heat escape instead of utilizing it. Why roast the founders, when heat lost by radiation represents tons of coal? The stampers that made buildings shake five leagues off were also a waste. Is it not better to forge by pressure than by impact? And it costs less. There is less loss. In these works, light, cleanliness, the space allotted to each bench, are but a simple question of economy. Work is better done when you can see what you do, and have elbow room. It is true, he said, 
We were very cramped before coming here. Land is so expensive in the vicinity of large towns. Landlords are so grasping. End quote. It is even so in mines. We know what mines are like nowadays, from Zola's descriptions and from newspaper reports. But the mine of the future will be well ventilated, with a temperature as easily regulated as that of a library. There will be no horses doomed to die below the earth. Underground traction will be carried on by means of an automatic cable put into motion at the pit's mouth. Ventilators will always be working, and there will never be explosions. This is no dream. Such a mine is already to be seen in England. I went down it. Here again, the excellent organization is simply a question of economy. The mine of which I speak, in spite of its immense depth, 466 yards, has an output of a thousand tons of coal a day, with only 200 miners, five tons a day per each worker, whereas the average for the 2,000 pits in England at the time I visited this mine in the early 90s was hardly 300 tons a year per man. If necessary, it would be easy to multiply examples proving that, as regards the material organization, Fourier's dream was not a utopia. This question has, however, been so frequently discussed in socialist newspapers that public opinion should already be educated on this point. Factory, forge, and mine can be as healthy and magnificent as the finest laboratories in modern universities, and the better the organization, the more will man's labor produce. If it be so, can we doubt that work will become a pleasure and a relaxation in a society of equals, in which hands will not be compelled to sell themselves to toil and to accept work under any conditions? Repugnant tasks will disappear, because it is evident that these unhealthy conditions are harmful to society as a whole. Slaves can submit to them, but free men will create new conditions, and their work will be pleasant and infinitely more productive. The exceptions of today will be the rule of tomorrow. The same will come to pass as regards domestic work, which today's society lays on the shoulders of that drudge of humanity, woman. Section 2. A society regenerated by the revolution will make domestic slavery disappear. This last form of slavery, perhaps the most tenacious, because it is also the most ancient. Only it will not come about in the way dreamt of by Flanisterians, nor in the manner often imagined by authoritarian communists. Flanisteries are repugnant to millions of human beings. The most reserved man certainly feels the necessity of meeting his fellows for the purpose of common work which becomes the more attractive, the more he feels himself a part of an immense whole. But it is not so for the hours of leisure reserved for rest and intimacy. The philanistery and the familyistery do not take this into account, or else they endeavor to supply this need by artificial groupings. A philanistery, which is in fact nothing but an immense hotel, can please some, and even all at a certain period of their life. But the great mass prefers family life, family life of the future, be it understood. They prefer isolated apartments, Anglo-Saxons even going as far as to prefer houses of from six to eight rooms in which the family, or an agglomeration of friends, can live apart. Sometimes a philanistery is a necessity, but it would be hateful were it the general rule. Isolation 
alternating with time spent in society, is the normal desire of human nature. This is why one of the greatest tortures in prison is the impossibility of isolation, much as solitary confinement becomes torture in its turn, when not alternated with hours of social life. As to considerations of economy, which are sometimes laid stress on in favor of phalanisteries, they are those of a petty tradesman. The most important economy, the only reasonable one, is to make life pleasant for all, because the man who is satisfied with his life produces infinitely more than the man who curses his surroundings. Footnote 2. Other socialists reject the phalanistery. But when you ask them how domestic work can be organized, they answer, each can do his own work. My wife manages the house, the wives of bourgeois will do as much. And if it is a bourgeois playing at socialism who speaks, he will add, with a gracious smile to his wife, Is it not true, darling, that you would do without a servant in the socialist society? You would work like the wife of our good comrade Paul, or the wife of John the carpenter. Servant or wife, man always reckons on woman to do the housework. But woman too, at last, claims her share in the emancipation of humanity. She no longer wants to be the beast of burden of the house. She considers it sufficient work to give many years of her life to the rearing of her children. She no longer wants to be the cook, the mender, the sweeper of the house. And, owing to American women taking the lead in obtaining their claims, there is a general complaint of the dearth of women who will condescend to domestic work in the United States. My lady prefers art, politics, literature, or the gaming tables. As to the work girls, they are few, those who consent to submit to apron slavery and servants are only found with difficulty in the States. Consequently, the solution, a very simple one, is pointed out by life itself. Machinery undertakes three quarters of the household cares. You black your boots, and you know how ridiculous this work is. What could be more stupid than rubbing a boot twenty or thirty times with a brush? A tenth of the European population must be compelled to sell itself in exchange for a miserable shelter and insufficient food, and woman must consider herself a slave, in order that millions of her sex should go through this performance every morning. But hairdressers have already machines for brushing glossy or woolly heads of hair. Why should we not apply, then, the same principle to the other extremity? So it has been done. And nowadays, the machine for blacking boots is in general use in big American and European hotels. Its use is spreading outside hotels. In large English schools, where the pupils are boarding in the houses of the teachers, it has been found easier to have one single establishment which undertakes to brush a thousand pairs of boots every morning. As to washing up, where can we find a housewife who is not a horror of this long and dirty work that is usually done by hand? solely because the work of the domestic slave is of no account. In America, they do better. There are already a number of cities in which hot water is conveyed to the houses as cold water is in Europe. Under these conditions, the problem was a simple one, and a woman, Miss Cochrane, solved it. Her machine washes 12 dozen plates or dishes, wipes them and dries them in less than three minutes. A factory in Illinois manufactures these machines and sells them at a price within reach of the average middle-class purse. And why should not small households send their crockery to an establishment as well as their boots? It is even probable that the two functions, brushing and washing up, 
will be undertaken by the same association. Cleaning, rubbing the skin off your hands when washing and wringing linen, sweeping floors and brushing carpets, thereby raising clouds of dust which afterwards occasion much trouble to dislodge from the places where they have settled down. All this work is still done because a woman remains a slave. But it tends to disappear as it can be infinitely better done by machinery. Machines of all kinds will be introduced into households, and the distribution of motor power in private houses will enable people to work them without muscular effort. Such machines cost little to manufacture. If we still pay very much for them, it is because they are not in general use, and chiefly because an exorbitant tax is levied upon every machine by the gentleman who wishes to live in grand style, and who have speculated on land, raw material, manufacture, sale, patents, and duties. But emancipation from domestic toil will not be brought about by small machines only. Households are emerging from their present state of isolation. They begin to associate with other households to do in common what they did separately. In fact, in the future we shall not have a brushing machine, a machine for washing up plates, a third for washing linen, and so on, in each house. To the future, on the contrary, belongs the common heating apparatus that sends heat into each room of a whole district and spares the lighting of fires. It is already so in a few American cities. A great central furnace supplies all houses and all rooms with hot water, which circulates in pipes. And to regulate the temperature, you need only turn a tap. And should you care to have a blazing fire in any particular room, you can light the gas specially supplied for heating purposes from a central reservoir. All the immense work of cleaning chimneys and keeping up fires, and woman knows what time it takes, is disappearing. Candles, lamps, and even gas have had their day. There are entire cities in which it is sufficient to press a button for light to burst forth. And indeed, it is a simple question of economy and of knowledge to give yourself the luxury of electric light. And lastly, also in America, they speak of forming societies for the almost complete suppression of household work. It would only be necessary to create a department for every block of houses. A cart would come to each door and take the boots to be blacked, the crockery to be washed up, the linen to be washed, and small things to be mended, if it were worthwhile the carpets to be brushed, and the next morning would bring back the things entrusted to it, all well cleaned. A few hours later, your hot coffee and your eggs done to a nicety would appear on your table. It is a fact that between twelve and two o'clock, there are more than twenty million Americans and as many Englishmen who eat roast beef or mutton, boiled pork, potatoes, and a seasonable vegetable. And at the lowest figure, Eight million fires burn during two or three hours to roast this meat and cook these vegetables. Eight million women spend their time preparing a meal which, taking all households, represents at most a dozen different dishes. Fifty fires burn, wrote an American woman the other day, where one would suffice. Dine at home at your own table, with your children if you like, but only think yourself Why should these 50 women waste their whole morning to prepare a few cups of coffee and a simple meal? Why 50 fires, when two people and one single fire would suffice to cook all these pieces of meat and all these vegetables? 
Choose your own beef or mutton to be roasted if you are particular. Season the vegetables to your taste if you prefer a particular sauce. But have a single kitchen with a single fire and organize it as beautifully as you are able to. Why has woman's work never been of any account? Why in every family are the mother and three or four servants obliged to spend so much time at what pertains to cooking? Because those who want to emancipate mankind have not included woman in their dream of emancipation, and consider it beneath their superior masculine dignity to think of those kitchen arrangements, which they have put on the shoulders of that drudge, woman. To emancipate woman is not only to open the gates of the university, the law courts, or the parliaments to her, for the emancipated woman will always throw her domestic toil onto another woman. To emancipate woman is to free her from the brutalizing toil of kitchen and wash house. It is to organize your household in such a way as to enable her to rear her children. If she be so minded while still retaining sufficient leisure to take her share of social life, it will come. As we have said, things are already improving. Only let us fully understand that a revolution, intoxicated with the beautiful words, liberty, equality, solidarity, would not be a revolution if it maintained slavery at home. Half humanity subjected to the slavery of the heart would still have to rebel against the other half. And that's it for this week's reading. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading, especially if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, corrections. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network, you can check out abnormalmapping.com to find all sorts of leftist-aligned podcasts there about books, video games, movies, anime. They also have a Patreon. And if you've been listening to all these episodes, it would be worth supporting them because the way they pay for hosting this comes from that Patreon. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can check out it and more of his work on sandimage.org. That's all from me this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.